through Christ. You can have a seat, and as you do, join me in prayer. Father, we thank You for the truth that Jesus paid it all. We pray that You would help us to see that Jesus paying it all and finishing the work, Him completing the once-for-all perfect sacrifice means that all to Him we owe. Jesus paid it all. We owe our entire lives and everything we are to Him for all eternity. So Lord, teach us what that means. Show us how we should respond to the truth of the Gospel. Show us what desires we should have, what longings should be in us, and then do it for us, Lord. Give us the desires we should have. Give us the longings we don't have. We're just saying we long to follow Jesus with every breath we have. Lord, may that reality be true by Your Spirit today. Lord, we need You as we open Your Word. I pray that You would help me to declare Your Word faithfully, that You would make me a faithful proclaimer of the truth that is here. I pray for these listeners, for all of us as we hear Your Word. I pray we would hear a better sermon than the one that's preached. I pray we would hear a word that would fall on our hearts, that would be etched into our souls, that we might live out Your truth in our everyday thoughts, desires, attitudes, and actions. God, we need You. God, we need You. Show us Your glory. Show us what You've done for us that we might live pleasing to You. We pray You do that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Church family, this is the most hopeful gathering on earth. What a joy to gather with God's people, to sing His praises, to hear His Word, to all be staring at the same truth together at the same time. This is the absolute highlight of any week, no matter what that week holds. And so let's continue to set our eyes on our great God by looking into His Word. Join me in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and we're going to read again Romans 6, verses 1 through 14, just like we did last week. Last week we looked at the first 10 verses of this passage where we saw the doctrine or the theology of our union with Christ. And this week we're going to look at the practical response to those truths in verses 11 through 14. And so we're going to read it all again. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. Paul asks, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death 
no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the powerful word of our God. May He burn its truth on our hearts. Well, the book of Romans exists to enthrall us with the greatness and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the great lessons from the book of Romans is that the gospel, the death, uh, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus is incredibly practical. Right from the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul says he is proclaiming this gospel that is the power of God for salvation. And what he means by that is the gospel is incredibly practical and powerful in our everyday lives. In fact, Romans teaches us that there is nothing more practical than the message of how we have been accepted by God through Jesus' death and resurrection. The objective truth of what Jesus has accomplished for us is the power to live this life well. The Gospel is not just the message about how we become a Christian. The Gospel is the message we need every day of our lives as Christians. Romans teaches us that there is nothing more practical than the Gospel about how we are declared righteous by a holy God. One of the places this is most clear is right here in Romans chapter 6. Because for five chapters, Paul has been hammering the gospel into our hearts. He has clearly explained how the death and resurrection of Jesus are the means of our justification with God. We've been declared right by God as a free gift of His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, not by any works that we have done. And not one single time in the first five and a half chapters of the book of Romans has Paul told us to do anything. Not one time in the first five and a half chapters has there been an imperative verb, a command. This is the first command in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 11. The first imperative. Now, take a step back and just think about this for a moment. Because I think this is almost completely unintelligible in our modern, pragmatic world. We live in a day and time where everyone, including those in the church, that have the attitude of, just tell me what to do. Don't bore me with the facts. Don't bore me with the truth. Just tell me how it applies to my life. Right? This is why the how-to sermon and the five steps to a happy life sermon, and the 12 practices to a positive attitude sermon are so popular today. 
Because all people want to know is what they need to do in order to feel good about their current lives. But there's a reason Paul spends five and a half chapters laying a foundation of the gospel before he ever tells us anything to do. Evidently, for the Apostle Paul, knowing and embracing the reality of the gospel is essential and foundational to obeying God from the heart. If you don't know and understand and embrace the gospel, you will obey out of some other way than by the Spirit, by the power of God, by the power He gives through the gospel. To say it as plainly as I know how to say it, the gospel is immensely practical for our everyday lives. This is the particular burden of Romans chapter 6. Jesus' definitive death and resurrection life should impact the way we view ourselves and the way we live our lives. We cannot go on sinning. Why? Because we have been united to Jesus. Because something has happened to us. And the truth of who we are the truth of what Jesus has done to make us His, united to Him, should shape our everyday lives. Paul says there's nothing more practical for true God-glorifying obedience as the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ as our sufficient substitute and our risen Lord. Now remember Paul began Romans chapter 6 by answering an objection to all that he has said about the incredible grace of God in Jesus. The wrong response to the grace of God is captured in verse 1. Remember, he asked, what shall we say then? To all of these great gospel truths, what shall we say? What's the conclusion? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? So that's the wrong response to the grace of God. Since Jesus died for my sins, since I'm forgiven of all my sins, since His grace is magnified in forgiving my sin, then I'll just go on passionately sinning so that grace would abound to me all the more. And Paul is emphatic in his response to that kind of thinking. In verse 2, he says, by no means. So what should be the correct response to the grace of God for us in the Gospel? How should we view our lives now that we are trusting in Jesus and united to Him? Well, Paul explains the first part of Romans 6 that believers are united to Jesus in His death and in His resurrection. When we trust in Jesus, we are united to Jesus like a branch is united to a tree. When we become a Christian, we are joined to Jesus so that when Jesus died, we died with Him. So that when Jesus was raised from the dead, we are made alive in Him. United to Jesus, we have this resurrection life coursing through our veins. And Paul says our baptism is a picture of this reality. We died to sin and we are alive in Jesus. And so Paul says, how can we, united to Jesus, go on living in sin? If we have died with Christ and been made alive in Christ, then we must live as dead to sin. We must live as alive to God. In Jesus, we've been broken off from continuing in our sinful passions and we have been grafted into Jesus as our tree of life. And if that's true, Paul says it is unthinkable that we would go on living in sin without regard for obeying and pleasing our God. So here's the burden of this passage that I am 
zealous for us to understand as a church. I'm zealous for us to apply and to embrace this truth as a church. If you are trusting in Jesus, you died to sin when Jesus died. And you were made alive by Jesus' resurrection. And if that's true, then we should live accordingly. If it's true that we are united to Jesus, then the responsibility on our part is to live out that union by the power of the Spirit that He has applied to us. In other words, Paul says, be who you are. You have been made in Christ. You've been recreated in Christ. Now, live accordingly. Jesus paid it all. Verse 10, all to Him I owe. Verse 11 and 12 and 13. We are united to Jesus and therefore we are new people with new responsibilities to be lived out by this power of the Gospel. And so, in these few verses here at the end of this passage, Paul begins to flesh out some of the practical implications of the objective truths of the Gospel. He moves from the indicative to the imperative for the first time in Romans. He's going to do this several times throughout Romans, but this is the first time he does it. Where he moves from what's reality to what's the responsibility. From the indicative to the imperative. And so Paul gives, I think, three specific commands here as to how we're to live out the practical implications of our union with Jesus. Let's, let's highlight each of these three commands that I see in verses 11, 12, and 13. Number one, think of yourself as dead to sin and alive in Jesus. Think of yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. So look at the conclusion that Paul draws Verse 11, to the theology of our union with Christ. Again, this is the first command in the book of Romans. Verse 11, so you also. So the, the also refers back to Jesus. Jesus died to sin. He was risen from the dead. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Notice that verse 11 is not simply a restatement or summary of the facts of verses 1-10. through 10. No, verse 11 is a command to realize and embrace the fact of our union with Christ. The command is to consider. If you've got a Scripture journal in front of you or a Bible you mark in, underline the word consider. That's the, the command here. Consider these things to be true. Consider yourself dead to sin in Jesus and consider yourself alive to God in Jesus. Now the word consider means to reckon something. It means to count something to be true. This is a present imperative which signifies continual action. We are to constantly consider ourselves. That is, think of ourselves to be in union with Jesus in His death and in His resurrection life. This is true objectively, Paul says, but we ought to think it, consider it, reckon it to be true in our everyday lives. This is a specific mental and volitional action that Paul is calling us to. This is something we are to actively do. We must constantly regard ourselves to have died to sin 
and now be alive to God. This is a command to consider the implications of the fact that we have already died to sin and we have already been made alive for the glory of God. Now listen, Paul is not playing a game of let's pretend here. He's not saying you are what you think. If you just think it, you'll be it. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying thinking you're dead to sin will make you dead to sin. No, he's saying if you already are dead to sin, now you should think like you're dead to sin and act like you're dead to sin. Know who you are in Christ, he's saying. Consider yourself to be what Jesus is, dead to sin and alive to God. Imagine that a newly married husband continues to live like he's single even after he gets married. He stays out late with his friends like he always has. He doesn't call home and tell his wife where he is since he never had to do that before. He spends all his money on himself like he always has. Now listen, if you were responsible for this young husband, how would you counsel him? What would you tell him to do? Well, a good piece of counsel would be to tell him he's got to begin considering himself to be married. He needs to think and act like a married man. He doesn't need to get married. He already is married. He needs to count himself to be married. It's already happened, and he needs to conform his life to that reality. Or think about a slave who's been freed and keeps going back to their old slavery and to their old master and to their old chains. He's already free, but he needs to consider himself free and to live accordingly. That's what God through Paul here in verse 11 is commanding us to do. You are united to Jesus. Think and act like you are united to Jesus. Ultimately, this is a command to think and act and live in the power of the gospel. Since Jesus died to sin and since Jesus lives to God and since you died to sin and you were made alive in Him, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And so what does that mean practically? What does it mean to consider ourselves to be dead to sin? Because clearly it doesn't mean that we no longer sin. I mean, Paul's going to go on in Romans chapter 7 to talk about his own struggle, his continuing battle with sin. Being dead to sin does not mean we no longer battle sin or struggle with sin in our lives. And so how can Paul say we are dead to sin now, now think and act like it? Well, to be dead to sin means we are dead to the pervasive love for and power of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. Sin is not our ultimate master any longer. And so now that we are united to Jesus, we are no longer under sin's dominion. We've been redeemed by Christ and we are now free from sin's power and sin's penalty. We have been given the ability to not sin. Before our union with Christ, we could only sin. That's all we could ever do. But now because of Christ, we can obey God from the heart by the power of the Spirit. And so he's saying do battle with sin in this way. Consider yourselves dead to sin in Christ. This is the process of sanctification. So we learned about justification, that one-time act of God declaring us right in His sight. But sanctification is the process of becoming more and more alive in Jesus, more and more dead to our sin. We have a new master. We have a new Lord. 
Which is why, which is why we should consider ourselves, think of ourselves, know ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. This is what we were created and redeemed to do. To live for the glory of God. And so in Jesus, we've been set free to do what we were created to do. To fulfill this God-given mission that He has given us. We are united to Jesus. And now we must actively make much of Him for all eternity. And so friends, we don't live for God in order to be united to Jesus. Don't get this backwards. Because oh, so many people get this backwards. We live for God because we have been united to Christ. The inevitable result of the work of Jesus in us is that we will be alive to God in Christ. So if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus, consider that to be true of you each and every day of your life. Consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. This is a a decision we make every day of our lives, every moment of our lives to say, this is who I am. Now God help me to make it a reality in my life. So think of yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. Here's the second command that Paul gives us in this passage, and that is kill sin. Kill it. Kill sin. Notice the command in verse 12. Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now the phrase mortal body here, I think it's a reminder that this life is temporary and we are headed somewhere. If this body is temporary, Paul is saying, why let sin reign in it? Why obey sin's passions in this life if we will soon put on immortality in glorification? Notice how serious this command is in verse 12. This isn't something we can do casually or occasionally, which is why I've I've summarized this command as Kill sin. Put sin to death. Let it not reign in your mortal body. Sin sin will not vacate the throne of your life easily. Sin is never just left on its own. You have to kill it. You have died to sin, and so why let it continue to reign and rule on the throne of your life as your master? We are to make war on our sinful passions. We are not to underestimate sin's power and pull, which is, I think, what the the sinful world around us wants us to do, is just make light of it. It's not that big a deal. We're not to play like sin is just harmless. Because sin will act like it's your friend. Sin will act like it's no big deal. But in reality, it wants to rule and reign over your life. It wants to take control of you and everything you are. Sin wants to enslave you to its passions. But Paul says we've died to sin. Therefore, we should be practically putting sin to death in our lives. John Owen has a really famous quote that you should know. I'm going to put it up on the screen. This is what Owen said. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I think what's so powerful about that quote is it's either or. I I think I often think, I often get into the mode that I'm just sort of neutral towards sin. But in reality, if I'm not actively pursuing to put sin to death in my life, it is killing me. It is reigning over me. We cannot be indifferent to sin in our lives. To be indifferent to sin is to allow it to reign over us. 
Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8.13. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Friends, what sin in your life have you allowed to keep ruling over you? What sins are you enslaved to? What lies do you keep believing even though you know they're lies? What idols do you keep worshiping even though you know they can't bring life, let not sin reign in your life to make you obey its passions. So what would that look like? What does that look like in our lives to let sin reign over us? Well, we could say a lot of things about that, but let me mention three ways that we often let sin reign in our lives. First, we often tolerate it. We tolerate sin. Even as Christians, we can just sort of let sin hang around as if it's not a big deal. We minimize the seriousness of sin when we just sort of hide it in the closet and just allow it to exist for years and decades unchallenged. Don't tolerate sin. That is to let it reign over you. Secondly, we often justify our sin. We let sin reign over us by justifying it. We become skilled as our own defense attorneys. We can always find a reason to do what we do or why we do what we do. We legitimize our sin when we justify it. We fool ourselves into thinking that our extenuating circumstances justifies our compromise. Friends, this is wickedness at its ugliest. Rationalizing away sin as if God's rules don't apply to us is evil. Do you really think God just meant that for everyone else and not for you? Having a good explanation for why we sin is just another form of denying sin because there is never a good explanation for any sin. We also justify our sin by blaming it on others, don't we? This is the oldest time itself. Not owning up to our own contributions. Don't justify your sin. Own up to it. Do not let it reign over you. Third, we often make no progress in defeating it. How do we let sin reign in us? We make no progress. We just stay in our sin forever and ever. We are to make war on sin and its reign in our lives. And so if we continue to give in to the same patterns, the same habits, years and decades after decades, it's proof that we are letting sin reign. We're making no advancement in putting it to death. If Jesus died to sin... And we died to sin in Jesus. And we're, if we're given new life in Jesus, we are to practically put sin to death in our lives. It is a matter of who or what is reigning in our lives. Is Jesus your king? Or does sin and its passions reign on the throne of your heart? Don't make peace with sin. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Declare war on the sin in your life. Kill it by the power of the gospel. Third and the final command that I want to highlight. Number three, do not offer yourself to sin, but to God. Do not offer yourself to sin, but to God. Notice the command in verse 13. There's one, com- one negative and one positive command in verse 13. Paul says, do not 
present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. That's what we're not to do. But what are we to do? But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So we're not to offer ourselves to sin, but we are to offer ourselves to God. So this is a really similar command as to the one that we're going to see probably next year in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. After 11 chapters of the, the theology of the gospel, in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, By the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual worship. So Paul says the response to the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ is that we would offer ourselves totally to God. We're not just to offer certain parts of us to God and the rest of us to sin. We're to offer none of our members to sin and all of ourselves to God. And so as those who've been united to Jesus, we don't turn away from sin to nothing. We kill sin in order to worship Jesus. We replace sin with holiness and obedience to our great God. And so Paul says we do this regularly, daily, continually. Before we trusted in Christ, we had no choice. We always offered ourselves to sin each and every day. But now that we are in Christ, we can either present ourselves to sin as our master or we can present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. I love that phrase. What a sweet thought that is in the middle of verse 13. We have been brought from death to life. Has that happened to you? Have you been brought from death to life? Well, if that's true, then don't offer yourself to sin and death. Offer yourself to the God who gives life. And notice Paul specifically says we're to offer our members to God as instruments, tools, of righteousness. I assume that Paul's talking about the various parts of our bodies and our lives. And so what Paul is saying is the way we offer our whole self to God is by offering all of our individual parts to God for righteousness. You see, I think it's easy to on a Sunday morning like this respond to God's word and say, God, I offer my whole self to you, all that I am to you. But then he comes and asks you to offer a specific part of your life to him, your your dating life, maybe, your finances, maybe, your job, maybe, your future, maybe, your internet browsing, maybe. He, he asked you to offer this one little piece. You know, I, nah, I don't know about that one now. Wait, I thought you offered your whole self to him. No, the way you offer your whole self is by offering every single individual part of your life to him for righteousness. It's a really helpful practice, I think, to do in our life. Perhaps this afternoon is just think through all the parts of your body, all the parts of your life, all the parts of your relationships, everything. Are they all offered to God for His purposes, for righteousness? Or are there any members serving unrighteousness? Are your eyes tools for righteousness or unrighteousness? Is your mouth a tool for righteousness or unrighteousness? Are your hands being used in the service of God's purposes or sin's purposes? Is your belly in service to God as king or to sin as your master? Are your sexual organs devoted to God or to sin? 
Or what about your internal members, your thoughts, your attitudes, your emotions, your passions? Do they serve righteous purposes or unrighteous? Is your job, your social media, your friendships, your hobbies, etc. offered to God? Or are they offered to sin? As followers of King Jesus, we are not to offer anything in our lives to sin for unrighteousness. Everything, every part is to be offered to God as our spiritual worship because we have been brought from death to life. We must daily make an offering of our whole selves to God and to His purposes. Again, this is the process of sanctification. That doesn't happen in one single instance. This is a lifelong battle that we do continually, continually, continually killing sin and offering ourselves to God each and every day, each and every moment of our lives. And so Paul gives these three practical applications to our union with Jesus. But then he concludes with a promise in verse 14. Do you see the promise? Look at verse 14 and notice that it's a promise. He says, For... Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. He says, because we are no longer under the law as our master, but we are under grace, the grace of Jesus, sin will not have victory over us. Why? Because we died to sin in Jesus. And therefore, the victory over sin has already been won. It's been won by the grace of Jesus on our behalf for us. So we live in this Already not yet era. Sin has been definitively defeated by Jesus. It will not have dominion over us because of the work of Christ. And yet, we still have to fight against our sin nature and do battle against our flesh daily. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And we do that knowing Jesus has already killed sin's power over us. And one day, friends, Jesus will rescue us from the presence of sin forever in glorification. Again, here's the point for us today. If you're going to live life well for the glory of God, we must learn to live in the power of our union with Jesus. Romans 6 is teaching us that the gospel is not just a doctrine to be, be, to be believed. It's not just a creed to confess. It's not just a historical event to be affirmed. The gospel is powerful, life-altering, soul-satisfying truth that frees us from sin's penalty, sin's power, and one day from sin's presence. The gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ is incredibly practical as we understand that we have been united to Jesus in His death and in His resurrection. So if you're trusting in Jesus... If you're a believer, if you've been made a new creation by Jesus, you died when Jesus died and you were made alive by Jesus' resurrection, therefore live accordingly. Think and act like a person who's been united to Jesus. But if you're not trusting in Him today, then you are still under sin's dominion. Sin still has you in its grasp, in its power. Sin is your master and it is a cruel master. And so I plead with you today, right now, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and be free today. Let me pray that would be true for you. Oh God, I pray for those in this room who are not trusting in Jesus. I pray that they would find Jesus to be worthy to be trusted, to be beautiful to their mind and to their heart, and that they would offer their whole selves to you today. 
by the power of Your grace. Oh God, save Your people. Call them out of darkness into Your light. Set them free from the power of sin that they might be united to Jesus forever. Oh God, thank You for the Gospel. May its power propel us and compel us to live our lives for Your glory. God, I pray You'd convict us where we need conviction. Help us to turn away from our sin and help us to find the power of Your grace sufficient to offer our whole selves to You forever. We love You, Lord. We thank You that You have first loved us in Jesus. And as we transition now to installing Mike as an elder of our church, God, would You give us unity as a church? Would You help us to honor please and praise You in every possible way. And may You be seen as great and glorious through the leadership of this church, through the unity, togetherness of our church family. Lord, may we resound. May we be a light on a hill. May we be salt in life in this dark world. Lord, help us to be that. And we pray it all in Jesus' great name. Amen.